Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following episode is from Marxist University, a series of discussions held in the fall of 2020 to introduce people to the most fundamental and pressing Marxist ideas. The October Revolution of 1917 created the most democratic regime in human history. Through the Soviets, power was in the hands of the workers and peasants for the first time in history. These gains, however, were later lost under Stalin. In this talk, Julien Arsenault, editor of La Reposte Socialiste, answers the question, was the Soviet Union actually socialist? Thanks everyone for tuning in today. I'm very happy to be presenting on this topic today. And this is the this is the eighth week of the Marxist University that Fightback has been organizing. And I assume many of you tuning in today have been watching our events, coming to the talks, participating. And we've talked about many things. You know, we've talked about the capitalist economic crisis, the fact that there's really no way out uh, under the system that completely mismanaged the COVID pandemic, among other things. We talked about racism, about how capitalism breeds racism, needs it to divide working class people. We talked about the limits of anarchism, of postmodernism. And by now, actually, probably some of you are, are convinced of the need to fight for socialism. And you're not alone, actually. There's a lot of polls. One poll after the other shows that there's a rising interest in socialist ideas in the US, in Canada, and elsewhere in the world. But then any person that is interested in socialism will want to learn about, about the history, about its history. And then what happens? Well, you go on the internet, you do a bit of research, and what do you find? You find articles about the famine in the Soviet Union, about Stalin's terror, about the gulags, the lack of democracy, etc., etc. So what, what do we have to say about this? So doesn't the Soviet Union experiment prove that socialism is quite a good thing in theory, but history shows that it doesn't work. This is a common, very common argument against Marxism repeated in academia, in the press, in history books. And of course, we can't deny the atrocities that happened in the Soviet Union. And it's really understandable that anybody who wished to fight to change the world today will want answers about what happened in the past. So what can be learned about the Soviet Union for the fight for socialism today? And what exactly was the Soviet Union? So I think to, to answer this, uh, we have no choice but to go a bit uh, in the past and go through the main steps in the development of the Soviet Union, and especially the first decades of its existence, to understand what happened. So really, the, the place to start is the Russian Revolution of 1917 itself. So at the beginning of that year, Russia was still under a, a dictatorial Tsarist regime, which was probably at the time the most reactionary government in the whole of Europe and the world. The country was engulfed in the First World War, which was having absolutely disastrous consequences for the masses of Russia and, and for the soldiers themselves. And the economy of Russia was also extremely, extremely backward in the sense that it was insufficient to meet the needs of everybody. This was a country where you had uh, a peasantry that accounted for around 85% of the population. 
And these peasants were still under the crushing domination of their landlords. Uh, where was I? Uh, yeah, so, and on the other hand, actually, you had on the one hand these, this massive peasantry, but you also had a, a, a very concentrated and very radical working class in the towns like Moscow and Petrograd. And the war made everything worse for everybody, except, except the rich, obviously. You had millions of peasants and workers becoming soldiers for the war that were completely sick of it. And this eventually led them to revolt against their oppressors. So the revolution actually started very interestingly uh, on February 23rd, which in the, in the Western calendar at the time was March 8th, which was uh, International Women's Day. And it started with a, with a strike of women workers uh, in the textile industry in particular. And this sparked a week-long mass movement when eventually like, men workers uh, joined, soldiers were sent to, to repress this mass movement. But one regiment after another ended up taking the side of the protesters. And really no, nobody wanted to defend the Tsarist regime. And this led to its overthrow in that month of February 1917. So we had this all-powerful regime with its secret police, its army, that collapsed like a house of cards. And the, the, the outcome of this situation was, was quite peculiar, actually, because on the one hand, it was clearly the workers in Petrograd that had led this movement to the, uh, for the overthrow of terrorism. And this movement had led to the creation of, of a Soviet in Petrograd. So for those who don't know, so Soviet is, is, is a Russian word, obviously, uh, the, the Russian word for, for council. So basically, Soviets were you know, general assemblies where workers, peasants, Soldiers democratically took decisions, elected representative, etc. There were Soviets eventually in factories, in villages, in cities. It basically mushroomed all across Russia in the space of a few weeks. And the reality was that already in February, these Soviets held power in Russia, in a sense. You had worker, workers and soldiers uh, recognize mainly or only the authority of the Soviets, would ask the Soviets permission to do this or that. That was the situation. But, but, but on the other hand, uh, the, the Soviets didn't formally hold power because what happened in, is in that week of revolt in February, a provisional government was formed and put in charge of the country, at least on paper. This was a government uh, that was dominated by bourgeois elements and in addition to journalists, lawyers, these type of people. Uh, and how did this happen? Well, the, the thing is, in the first period of the revolution, the people elected in the Soviets, elected by workers, by soldiers, were, were generally of the opinion that the, the, the workers could not take power and run society. Uh, we, these were mainly uh, representative of the Menshevik party, which you might have heard about before, and the social revolutionaries, the SRs. So the, these people thought that only the bourgeois could be in power in Russia. And you know, if, if you look around today, you'll, you'll see many people in the movement that don't believe working people are capable of running society. But as you can see, this is, this is nothing new. It's been going on for quite a while. So yeah, these people led the Soviets and said that the Soviets should support this provisional government led by the bourgeois, that the Soviets could not take power in their hands. So, so, so what you had is from February till October 1917, uh, you had an unstable situation of what we, we call dual power where you had on the one side, the masses of workers and peasants organized through Soviets. 
And at the other end, uh, the bourgeois rallying around this provisional government that was at least formally in power. Uh, and and the, the February Revolution really raised the hopes of the masses that their demands would be met by this new government. And the main demands of the masses were, were actually quite straightforward. You know, they wanted an end to the war. That's a pretty simple demand. They wanted the land for the peasants, were brutally exploited by, by their landlords, and bread to feed the workers, and generally better working conditions for the working class. But it became very clear as time went on that the, this bourgeois government would, would, would never uh, satisfy these demands. And especially, in particular, on the question of the war, the bourgeoisie had absolutely no intention uh, of stopping that. There was, this was very, very profitable. War is very profitable for the rich. And they had no intention of stopping that. And they were very attracted to the idea of making profits, winning new spheres of influence, etc., etc. So for eight months, this provisional government was a government of crisis, completely incapable of, of, of satisfying uh, anyone. But and, and during this time, you, you can understand that working class people were getting increasingly impatient and radicalized in front of this government. Uh, same can be said of the peasants and soldiers. So I, I already mentioned that uh, the Mensheviks and SRs had this idea uh, that the Soviets should support the, the provisional government. But during this period, there was another tendency in the working class movement, another party putting forward an alternative to this in the Soviets. And this was the Bolshevik party which was a party, a Marxist party, led by Lenin and Trotsky, among others, in 1917. Probably have heard these names before, I suppose. Uh, and the Bolshevik party during this period patiently explained the need for the Soviets to take power away from the provisional government. And the more, <laughs> the, more the betrayals became clear, the more the Bolsheviks gained support uh, among the masses, and to be sure, like this wasn't like a linear process, and I don't, I don't, don't have time to go into the details of the the ups and downs of 1917. A lot happened, but generally speaking, the influence of the Bolsheviks grew bigger and bigger, uh, with their slogan "All power to the Soviets." And you know, they explained that the only way to stop the war, the only way for the peasants to get land, the only way to raise the living standards of the workers was if the Soviets took power, if the working class and peasants took power in their hands. And this is what happened. So by the end of October, it was clear that the masses supported the Bolsheviks. And this, this is corroborated by, by even bourgeois sources and bourgeois that were there at the time. They were forced to admit it. And in the space of eight months, the Bolsheviks went from a small group of 8,000 8, people out of a po population of something like 150 million to a mass party of 250,000 people you know, there were some stories of you could have a single Bolshevik in a factory would win over all his colleagues to this perspective in the given conditions. So in, uh, on October 25, 1917, this is when the seizure of power took place. So there was a Congress of Soviets that was called, and uh, the, the Congress decided that the Soviets were taking power in their own hands. And what oppo opposition was there to this? There was hardly any opposition at all. And there was hardly any bloodshed in Petrograd because the Soviets and the Bolsheviks had the overwhelming majority of support in the population. Actually, the, the Soviets even had a, a, a real formal majority at that Congress. They had 58% of, de of the delegates and they formed uh, a Soviet government in coalition with uh, the left-wing, a left-wing split of the social revolutionaries. 
And you won't see in many, many articles that the first Bolshevik government was in fact a coalition. Instead, you'll hear, you know, that the Bolsheviks were bloodthirsty tyrants uh, that wanted absolute dictatorship. But this simply doesn't match the facts. So, so yeah, by October, the power was now really in the hands of the Soviets, these bodies, democratic bodies of the exploited classes. And I have a couple of quotes here from Lenin that really, in my opinion, really illustrates the, 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 the spirit of the time. Uh, so here it goes. So Lenin said, very often delegations of workers and peasants come to the government and ask, for example, what to do with such and such a piece of land. And I say to them, you are the power. Do all you want to do. Take all you want. We shall support you. And in another context, he said, socialism cannot be implemented by a minority, by the party. It can, be, it can be implemented only by tens of millions when they have learned to do it themselves. This, this is what the Russian Revolution was. It was a powerful mass movement of working class people and oppressed peoples. And, and from this, what you had is basically a new state was born, a, a workers' state, which had openly and consciously a, as its aim to begin the socialist transformation of society. But now, that being said, it's one thing to, to desire to build socialism. But we need to understand that socialism is not just this great idea that some people had uh, that can be implemented at any moment or under any conditions. And in fact, certain material conditions are, are, are necessary for the establishment of a socialist society. And, and there is one condition that is absolutely uh, a key in order to have a genuine workers' democracy that can actually build socialism is that you, uh, the needs of people must be satisfied. The struggle for survival must disappear. A, gen a genuine socialist society is, is one where the needs of people are met. It is a society of, of plenty. And here you, you see me coming. This is exactly what's missing, uh, what, what was missing in the Soviet Union. The backward state of the economy made it impossible to meet the needs of the population. But actually, that's just one side of the story. Because adding to this uh, objective difficulty was the, was the fact that in, in a few months, uh, in, in the space of a few months after the October Revolution, the capitalists of all over the world sent their armed forces to try to overthrow the Soviet regime by force. And in Russia itself, all the parties, except the Bolsheviks, in one form or another, joined forces to overthrow violently the Soviet regime. So the Bolshevik party, which, by the way, became the Communist Party, uh, became the only legal party for that reason. So in total, there, there were 21 foreign armies that invaded Russia over the space of three years through uh, 1918 to 1921. And this included all the main powers. And it even included Canada, actually, who sent, uh, I think it's 4,000 troops uh, back in those days. Uh, and just to illustrate the, the, the mood of the ruling classes at that time, you might have heard about Churchill before, I assume, this great democratic leader from Britain. He said, Bolshevism must be strangled in its cradle. So this was the mood of, of the bourgeois at the time. So this, this opened the period known as the, as the Civil War, a very bitter civil war, where the, the masses of, of Russia fought courageously to defend themselves against foreign powers and the, the right-wing white armies uh, it, within Russia itself. And under these difficult conditions, actually, the Bolsheviks could count on the support 
of the population. This was actually admitted by a general at the time, a British general. He said, he, he said this, he said, if forced to a choice, which is actually what is happening at the moment, the Russians prefer the Bolshevik government. This was the situation. They were under siege by, by the bourgeois and they resisted. And they, they actually won the civil war in 1921. The Red Army won and maintained Soviet power. But the trouble is that the country was completely, completely destroyed after this war. You know, you, you need to think, think about it. The First World War and then immediately a civil war. That was uh, the complete destruction of Russia. And actually in 1921, industrial production had dropped 80% since uh, it's pr uh, compared to the pre-war level, uh, 1913 that is. So pre-First World War. That, that's just incredible. Can you imagine if in Canada and Quebec, uh, in the space of a few years, we lost 80% of industrial capacity? That would be, you know, there would be misery here too. And, and by 1919, the number of industrial workers had declined by 76% in two years. This, this, is, this is the situation. You had the absolute decimation of the working class that had taken power in 1917. Many had died in the Civil War. And this is what explains what's, hap what's happened after. This explained the rapid, uh, you could say, dying out of, of the, the Soviet democracy built in 1917. Because yeah, a worker's democracy, worker's democracy, it's the workers that are in control of what, what is happening. But think about it. Does a starving worker have time to go to a general assembly? No, they're, they're, they're busy surviving. So uh, the more the economic situation deteriorated, the more the Soviets were basically abandoned by, by the workers. And uh, added to that was the fact that uh, in Russia, 70% of the population was illiterate, which meant they couldn't, many, many of them could not take, take up the important task of running the worker's state. And, and in, in this context, what happened, what tended to happen more and more is that the task of running the state were occupied by, by functionaries from the former Tsarist state. And you, you can see the dangers with that. So in, instead of a healthy workers' democracy through the Soviets, the state apparatus, the political power, was more and more in the hands of alien class elements that were removed from the conditions of the working class. So you had this layer of ex-Tsarist functionaries, managers, even ex-Red Army officers, accustomed to commanding without opposition, became, became more and more uh, independent of any control from the working class whatsoever. And this layer, this, this bureaucracy, took control of the state apparatus. So what we saw was the bureaucratization of the Soviet state. And, th and this process also occurred inside the Communist Party itself that was ruling the country, where basically working class people that had built this party had made the revolution, were elbowed by, by bureaucrats, and even by people that used to be in the Mensheviks <laughs> or in opposition to the regime. So they were, they were elbowed by the bureaucrats and these people. And it was actually a saying at the time, many workers would be told by these people, like in the 1920s, they would be told this, this isn't 1918 anymore. What, what does that mean? That means that we're no longer in the golden age of the working class being involved. This is what that meant when, you know, bureaucrats full of themselves told that to working class people. But what we need to understand here is that bureaucracy is a social phenomenon. In such a society where there is generalized misery, there is the need 
to have, uh, you, you could call it an arbiter that decides who eat and who has, has to wait. And, and obviously, because there's such little wealth in society, well, this bureaucracy, this layer, will tend to keep the biggest part of the pie. And these people started to feel important, full of themselves, and really started to, to develop interests uh, in maintaining this inequality. And this, this is the process that was happening through the 1920s. And, and, and again, I insist on this. This really is explained first and foremost by the absolute misery in which the country was found. And th this layer, this layer of bureaucrats, of functionaries, was most aptly represented by the man called Joseph Stalin. And I'll, I'll come back to this question of Stalin. But then you, you might be at a point where you're asking yourself, why, why the hell did the Bolsheviks take power if it was to lead to this in a country that did not have the material conditions for socialism? Because that's the case. Everybody knew that Russia alone did not, could not achieve socialism. But the, the point is that the Russian Revolution was aimed at being the spark to the revolution in Europe and the world. And really, it's impossible to understand what they were doing and understand the revolution without understanding this internationalist perspective of the Bolsheviks. Really, the, the system, the, the Soviet system, could only remain healthy and start building socialism if Russia received help, help from, from at least one or a few more advanced countries that could have helped Russia overcome its historical backwardness, drag the country out of misery with advanced technology, machinery, skilled workers, socialist cooperation, if you want to call it that. Um, but, but, and, and, and the fact is that actually the Russian Revolution was the spark to a revolutionary wave that shook Europe and even uh, reverberated in America and Asia. Between 1917 and 1923, you had revolutionary movements in Hungary, in Italy, in Finland, in Germany. And in Germany, it came very, very close to winning. I obviously don't have time for details. There was even here in Canada, the Winnipeg general strike of 1919, which was definitely uh, part of this wave. And later on, there was a general strike in Britain in 1926. There was the Chinese revolution of 1925-27. But unfortunately, obviously, I don't have time for details, but uh, every single of these revolutions ended up in a, in a defeat and capitalism was able to survive. But, but the point is that it was never ever the intention of building socialism in Russia alone. And every main leader of the Russian revolution was completely honest about this question. Uh, and by the way, this is, this is one of the reasons why one of the first thing the Bolsheviks did after consolidating power in Russia was to build an international, to, to build a revolutionary international organization to fight for socialism around the world. And this was the, the communist international, which actually is the topic of next week's Marxist University presentation. So I will not get into this here. So really, we, we got to remember the two key factors that led to the degeneration of the Soviet regime into this bureaucratic mess. Uh, the first is the, the economic backwardness of the country that was almost insurmountable at the time in, in isolation. And on top of this, the isolation of the revolution itself encircled by hostile capitalist countries. So really th this bureaucratization was not something that was inevitable or, or will happen in any and every case. It is due to specific material conditions that we need to analyze. So if, if we come back to the events, so after the civil war, which more or less ended in 1921, 
Uh, the masses of workers and peasants were understandably extremely tired and fell into apathy, basically. And they were also getting demoralized, you know, one defeat after another elsewhere in the world. Uh, it had a heavy weight on the mor morale of the working class. And in this context, actually, the bureaucracy was able to, to win from this. Every defeat of the revolution in the world kind of served to, to strengthen this layer that could become more and more powerful and autonomous all around this figure of, of Stalin. And speaking of Stalin, actually, when we ask the question of, the question, was the Soviet Union socialist? We get into a hell of a lot of confusion if we listen to what Stalin or the Stalinist said. And probably the, the most important uh, deformation of Marxism coming from Stalin was this infamous theory of socialism in one country, which actually, uh, actually helped to sow a lot of confusion on what the Soviet Union actually was. So this th theory of socialism in one country was first brought up out of nowhere by Stalin in 1924, which was after one of the decisive defeats of the German Revolution. So it's basically this idea, pretty straightforward, that uh, the, the Soviet Union uh, had what it took to build socialism within its border, independently of, of the world revolution. And really, the, you got to imagine this was a complete break with anything Marx, Engels, or Lenin ever stood for. Uh, th this complete betrayal of the internationalist perspective of, of Marxism. And, and I already mentioned that everybody knew that this was impossible. This was openly admitted. Actually, Stalin himself was quoted saying exactly that uh, in the early year of 1924, just a few months before uh, coming out with socialism in one country. So th this was a complete shift from this internationalist perspective of Marxism. But the question is why this theory was developed and why did it take root? Well, the, in, in society, ideas don't just take root artificially or, or, or randomly. Ideas reflect, ultimately, somewhere, the interest of a group, of a class, or a caste in society. And, and really, this I, these ideas reflected the interest of this rising bureaucracy that I explained. These, these petty bourgeois types were basically afraid of revolution. They, they, well, the only thing they wanted was peace and quiet, to be left alone, securing their position, managing the Soviet economy and society without having to bother with you know, the stormy and scary events of revolution. This was, uh, this was what these people were kind of thinking. And th this bureaucracy had developed independent interests, and their interests were basically the maintenance of the status quo at home and, and abroad. And it, it, it is really these interests that were expressed in the perspective of socialism in one country. So uh, we already spoke a couple of weeks ago at the Marxist University of, of what is Trotskyism. And so I won't go into the details of, of Leon Trotsky's fight against Stalinism. Uh, Leon Trotsky took, took on himself to build the left opposition in the Soviet Communist Party and then in the Communist International. Uh, and yeah, he was one of the main uh, figure to fight against the bureaucracy around Stalin, fighting to reinstate workers' democracy. There was also a debate in the 20s about uh, where Trotsky put forward the need to focus on industrializing Russia to strengthen the working class, whereas Stalin's policy were basically favoring uh, rich peasants, a layer of rich peasants that were actually pushing to, to, to come back to capitalism. I don't really have time to go into this, but, um, but yeah, so Leon Trotsky took up the fight against the Stalinist bureaucracy. Uh, 
But the, the bureaucracy really, really uh, took advantage of the situation of tiredness of the masses. So what they did is basically they accused the left opposition of wanting to continue international revolution indefinitely. And they basically said, you know, enough shakeups. It's time to rest, focus on build socialism in one country, uh, in, in our country. And this propaganda, to a certain extent, found an echo among certain layers of, of tired workers. Uh, and there was at the time quite, quite a sizable layer following Trotsky's left opposition. But the main point is that the broad masses of workers were completely exhausted and they were not able to fight this bureaucracy. So the, the, the passivity of the masses was used by Stalin and the, the bureaucracy had the upper hand and expelled Trotsky's left opposition, sent Trotsky in exile, uh, even kicked him out of the Soviet Union in early 1929. And really during this period, what you had was a real witch hunt against Trotsky's supporter in the Soviet Union and abroad. But it did not end with Trotsky, actually. I, I do not have time for the details for this, but from the mid-1930s onwards, and even a bit before that, Stalin carried one purge after another in, in, the, in, the, in the Communist Party. And opposing Stalin meant being forced to admit made-up crimes, being shot, being sent to the gulag, and even eventually some allies of Stalin, Stalin went through this. But the question is, why was this the case? Why was there this need for horrible repression, uh, among other things, against fellow communists? Well, the, the thing is, this dictatorial bureaucracy was anxious at the existence of any opposition to its power, but in particular against anyone that would remind them of the revolutionary past that they were betraying or around which the workers could potentially rally. So the, the bureaucracy with Stalin at its head really needed to severe, uh, severe any link with its revolutionary past while claiming to defend it, uh, which is a very interesting uh, pro process, but it led to, to, to a bloodbath of communists being, being uh, purged by Stalin. And really from the 1930s onwards, Stalin was the only master in the house at the head of this powerful bureaucracy, alien to the cause of international socialism. And while this was happening, here you had Stalin and the others claiming to be building socialism uh, in Russia alone on top of it. And even in the 30s, Stalin said, we have attained socialism and now we're on our way to communism. Uh, this was obviously not the case. And, and actually later on, Stalin reached a logical conclusion of this idea of socialism in one country, where he said that, oh no, this idea of world revolution, that, that was never the case. You, you know, every country can do the revolution if they want, but if they don't want, then so be it, there will be no revolution. Basically telling workers of the world, do what you got to do, but it's not of my business. And actually this led to another logical step. In 1943, Stalin dissolved the Communist International. This organization founded to fight for socialism around the world was dissolved by, by decree. Uh, th there would be so much more to say about this period, but I think uh, this so far is sufficient to get a general picture of what was happening. But then just a few words on Stalin himself. We, we can ask yourself, was Stalin the cause of this whole disaster? Because you sometimes hear this idea, oh, Stalin was horrible, which he was. But, but the point is, the, the bureaucratization was not the work of evil people like Stalin. It was the product of objective conditions. Uh, and Stalin was nothing more than the man that represented best the interests of this bureaucratic layer. But if Stalin, if Stalin had never existed, this would have happened anyway. 
the, the truth is Stalin did, you know, leave its mark and made this process incredibly oppressive and brutal. He was a very brutal individual, but the, but the regime would have degenerated anyway if he hadn't been alive. And so the fact was Stalin was not a cause of the degeneration, but was actually a product of it. And he was perfectly suited for this job. And, and actually, I want to say just a few words on Lenin, because this is something you, you hear quite often. It's like, oh, you know, Stalin and Lenin were pretty much the same. And the Stalin regime was just a continuation of Lenin's regime. Well, first of all, it's maybe a, a little known fact that Lenin himself, for the, for the last year of his life, actually devoted it to fight against the bureaucracy. And he actually was preparing just before his last stroke that uh, made him uh, incapable of participating in politics, was preparing an offensive against Stalin. And in one of his very last writings, recommended to remove Stalin himself. And, and second of all, if people say that Lenin and Stalin are, are you know, one is the continuation of the other. Well, I, I have a question actually, and I'll try to show on the camera this, this document or this photo, should I say? I don't know if you see it. It's a photo of the Central Committee of the Bolsheviks in 1917. And it says, uh, this person shot, this person disappeared, this person dead. What, what, what the photo shows is that everybody on the central committee that led the revolution of 1917 was killed or shot or driven to suicide by Stalin, except the ones who died early for health reasons. So my question is this, if Lenin and Stalin are, are the same or one the continu continuation of the other, why would Stalin need to execute all of them to, to establish his power? I think what, what this really shows is that this, Stalin was a radical break with Bolshevism, actually. Uh, and, and actually, Lenin's widow, Krupskaya, who was also a comrade involved in the party, uh, said two years after Lenin's death that we, Lenin died in 1924, by the way. She said if Lenin was still alive, he would certainly be in jail. What, what this means, I think, is Stalin has nothing to do with the tradition of Lenin. But so far, I've talked a lot already. Uh, and uh, the, the question of the event is, was the Soviet Union socialist? And I've already said uh, quite a few times that uh, because of the prevailing material conditions, socialism could, could simply not be established in the Soviet Union at the time. But, you know, this doesn't solve the question. This doesn't say what the Soviet Union was. <clears throat> So as I already explained, 1917 saw the, uh, um, the coming of a worker state into being, the Soviets, these democratic bodies controlling the economy. And, and after the October Revolution, through a series of ups and downs, eventually the main levers of the economy were nationalized, were put under the control of the worker state and the workers themselves. And eventually, instead, you had a planned economy implemented instead of the, of the anarchy of private property. But the, but the thing is, because of this rising bureaucracy, instead of having this economy democratically planned by the workers, it was bureaucratically managed by a small clique at the top. Uh, but, but despite this, the, econ the planned economy stayed in place under Stalin and under his successors. So in that sense, even with the rise of Stalin, this, it, th there wasn't a return to capitalist property relations. So in that sense, we couldn't say that the Soviet Union was, was capitalist either. It was not a capitalist state. We still had a worker state. We still had the means of production in the hands of the worker state, although the state was controlled 
by a bureaucracy. Uh, Trotsky actually coined the term, uh, he, talk, he talked about the Soviet Union as a degenerated worker state, which I think is quite an apt description. And this bureaucracy, you know, was not a natural outgrowth of the October Revolution. Again, again and again, it was due to specific material conditions. But so the question, what was the Soviet Union? Our answer is that the Soviet Union was this transitional regime. It was a transitional regime, uh, kind of halfway between capitalism and socialism. And But the fact is, with the rise of this privileged bureaucracy, society was moving away from socialism. So it was kind of stuck in this in-between where it could go either way, back to capitalism or eventually to socialism. And I guess you know, you know how it ended, but I'll come back to this. Uh, actually, in 1936, Leon Trotsky wrote, a, wrote an amazing book, which, which I definitely recommend people to read. It's called The Revolution Betrayed. And in this book, he explained the possible scenarios for the future of the Soviet Union. And Trotsky explained that the bureaucracy you know, still wanted, to a certain extent, to defend this planned economy because it was the source of their power and privileges. And you know, they were still portraying as communists. They printed the works of Marx for decades. They swore to Lenin, but at the same time, you know, they went back home in nice cars. They had their big apartments and wore nice clothes that the masses didn't have access to. But Trotsky explained that if the masses were not able to overthrow the bureaucracy and reestablish a genuine workers' democracy, well, at some stage, the bureaucracy, uh, actually, sorry, the bureaucratically planned economy would reach its limits, and at that moment, the bureaucracy itself would seek to return to capitalism. Why? Because, you know, these privileges depended on their position as functionaries, managers, but they were not the owners of the companies and the means of production. These remained state property. So really to keep their privileges intact and be able to transmit them to, to their offspring, which was not possible under the Soviet Union, well, you would eventually need to go to reinstate private property, to go back to capitalist relations. And this is actually precisely what happened in the 1990s. But before I go into the 1990s, I just want to say a few words about uh, what the overthrow of capitalism in Russia achieved, despite the bureaucracy. Uh, you won't hear often from bourgeois economists uh, the fact that actually in the 50s and 60s in particular, there was tremendous advances uh, in the Soviet Union, despite the bureaucratic uh, problem, to call it that. Uh, and it really showed a glimpse of what a society free from capitalist exploitation could, could achieve. And actually, Russia was able to go very quick, very quickly from a backward economy to being the second main power on earth. And uh, in the last decades of its existence, the Soviet Union was in a situation where they had more scientists and technicians that the USA, Britain, and Germany put together. And actually, there were there was advances for women in particular. Uh, they were in higher education. Uh, it went from twenty eight percent of women in higher education in, uh, uh, you know, twenty eight percent women, seventy two men in nineteen twenty seven. It went up to forty three percent in nineteen sixty and forty nine percent in nineteen seventy. And th this was there was only a few countries which were Finland, France, and and the U S. where women were in higher education over forty percent at the time. Uh, the rent was extremely low in the Soviet Union. It was about 5% of income. How much do you guys pay in Toronto? <laughs> what part of your income goes to goes to, uh, uh, <laughs> goes to to rent? I, I don't want to know. 
I kind of know, but anyway, you, you see the point. And there was virtually no unemployment. And before the counter reforms of the 80s, the last time meat and dairy prices had been increased was 1962. And bread and sugar stayed for the same, at the same price from 1955 till the 80s. Uh, th so this, uh, those are just a few examples. There, there would be more. But it shows a glimpse of the potential of a planned economy instead of leaving the economy in the hands of market forces. But despite the advances, and there would be more to say on that, well, th this could not last as long as the bureaucracy was in power. And during the last decades, in the 70s, in the 80s, the economy reached a point of stagnation. And the reason was that uh, the bureaucracy became, became a, a barrier to the development of the economy. And this is, this is relatively easy to understand. Think about it. A bureaucracy of a few hundred or a few tens of thousands of people in, in a country of 150-something million people cannot plan the economy alone. There was millions of things produced. This was a very complicated economy that could not be managed by a bureaucracy divorced from the working class. So a, a planned economy needs to be democratically managed at all level. The workers need to have an input. Um, but because of the bureaucracy, you had this enormous waste, corruption, mismanagement. And there's many examples of, of these. You might have heard, you know, a bunch of shoes being produced, but only left-footed. You know, the, the bureaucrats had a quota of how many tons of cars to produce. So they would produce very heavy cars to, to reach the quotas. So this is a bit silly. And the, the workers would notice the problems, but kept their mouths shut uh, for fear of reprisals from this, uh, from this dictatorial bureaucracy. So eventually came economic stagnation. And it is at this point that a part of the Soviet bureaucracy started to look uh, with envy at the West and started to want to implement measures to go back to capitalism. And this, this is what happened, as you probably know. Uh, in 1990, they reint reintroduced the right to private property, to own business and exploit people. Uh, price controls were abolished, which led to massive inflation. State companies were privatized one after another. So you really had in the 90s a, a capitalist counter-revolution. But it was very peculiar because these people, these people talking about communism, building communism, were the ones that became the oligarchs, the rich that became rich out of the fall of the Soviet Union. So what Trotsky predicted, unfortunately, happened. The bureaucrats became the capitalists, and, and, and the consequences were absolutely terrible. And uh, the capitalists don't talk about that today, but the, the return of capitalism in the Soviet Union caused what is perhaps, uh, I, I can't think of any other example of a collapse of the economy except in time of war. This was really, it was really like a war. It was an absolute catastrophe. They, they called it the, the shock therapy. Well, it was, it was a hell of a shock for the working class. And just to give you an idea, you know, uh, generally, uh, life expectancy is a good indicator of a society moving forward. Where in the Soviet Union, life expectancy, expectancy sorry, dropped by six years uh, in the first uh, seven years, in, from 1987 to 1994. And unemployment skyrocketed alcoholism skyrocketed, homelessness, and all the rest of it. And actually, real wages fell by 43% from 1991 to 1993. So th this, was, this is what happened. And they won't tell you that the return of liberal democracy in Russia uh, came with this disaster. And actually, 
Today, Russia has become one of the most unequal countries of the major economies of the world. Actually, a, a report from 2015 shows that Russia today, uh, uh, well, in 2015, ten, the richest 10% owns 87% of the country's wealth. And the same report showed it was 76% in the US. So it's, it's worse than the US. It is more unequal than many of these advanced economies. So no, the, the Soviet Union was not yet socialist, but the return of capitalism brought absolute misery to the working class. And really the, the freedom that came back was the freedom to lose your job, the freedom to pay ridiculous rent and to go hungry. And this was the, the, the results of the return of capitalism in Russia. But what does this all mean for today? So can, can we really say that communism or socialism failed in the Soviet Union? Well, as I said and repeated, the Soviet Union was not socialist, let alone communist, because of the material conditions of the time. So what really failed in the Soviet Union was not socialism, but frankly, a, a gross caricature of what socialism will be. And it decisively showed that socialism cannot be implemented within a single country. You need the movement to expand, to, 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 to <laughs> you need victorious revolutions in other countries to build a genuine workers' democracy. But, but, but that being said, we, we should not throw the baby with the bathwater because there, is some things, there are some things to be learned from the Soviet Union and, and in particular from the Russian Revolution of 1917. I think uh, socialists today and us in the movement in Canada and Quebec can learn a great deal from the early years of the Bolshevik party who was able to, to gain the confidence of the masses, to carry through a victorious revolution in a gigantic country, the working class came to power. This happened and it can happen again. Uh, but the thing is that without the Bolshevik party, I think we can confidently say that the October revolution would not have succeeded to overthrow capitalism. And the experience of other revolutions show that you need an organization. You need to be organized to have a conscious socialist program and win people over to this. And this is what we need to do today. And, it, I, and I already mentioned there was steps forward uh, allowed by the overthrow of capitalism. I mentioned the one in the 50s and 60s. But actually, there, there's some interesting facts that not everybody know. Uh, right at the beginning of the revolution, uh, in the social field, there was tremendous step forwards. Uh, Russia became the first country to give women the right to vote. It was the first country to legalize abortion. It decriminalized homosexuality in 1922, almost 50 years before Canada big progressive Canada, uh, there was a woman in the Bolshevik government and a, a openly homosexual men, which was quite an unprecedented future uh, in this epoch. And really the, the early years of the Soviet, of the Russian revolution showed us how the fight for socialism can unite all workers, regardless of backgrounds, identity, national identity or otherwise, in the fight for a better world. And the last thing, the very last thing I want to say, and then I'll, I'll, I'll leave it for the discussion. The last thing to keep in mind, which is perhaps the most important, is that the conditions that led to this degeneration of the Soviet Union are no longer present today. In most countries, the working class is the overwhelming majority of society, contrary to, the, to Russia, actually, before the revolution. In places like, like Canada, France, the USA... In, in many, many countries of the world, what you have is not mass illiteracy like you had in Russia. What you have is the opposite. You have millions 
uh, of graduate that can't find work. You have the opposite problem, you could say. What we have is not countries devastated by war and, you know, big uh, technical inefficiencies, industrial backwardness. What we have is factories that are not used. Uh, you have capitalists sitting on billions of dollars that they don't invest in the economy. So you could say almost the situation is overripe for, for socialism today. And on a world scale, we live in a society where we would have more than enough to feed everyone, where technology could rapidly allow us to reduce the working day. We have the most educated generation in history. So, so really, it's, it's a completely different situation, which really makes me believe that the conditions for socialism are, are very much present today. And the chances of a bureaucracy, of a sorry, of a revolution bureaucratically degenerating are are, are drastically reduced, in my opinion. And the, the, we, there's enormous potential today. And the the real barrier is the capitalist system itself. And I think more and more people see this. And actually, when the Soviet Union fell, the bourgeois were were you know, they opened the champagne and they they celebrated. This was this was the end of history. They they had won, right? Uh, it was a victory of liberal democracy. Well, I, I think 30 years later, we, we, this, this is a joke. This is actually, a, this is actually funny. It's, it's funny that they, they said that. We see clearly that history is not over. And I think people are realizing more and more the misery that capitalism imposes on us. It, it has never been clearer than in this pandemic that we are in. And people are already rising up and will in the future. And there is this tremendous potential for revolutions today and to overthrow capitalism and do away with the rule of a tiny clique of unelected bankers and capitalists. And this, this is what Fight Back uh, fights for today. So no, history has not ended. And the Soviet Union, while never attaining socialism, it did show the potential for an economy not run by bankers and capitalists. But it, in retrospect, it will be seen as the mere prelude of greater events to come. And we are the generation that will overthrow capitalism for good this time and lay the foundations for a genuine socialist society. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com. <laughs>